Today, we're going to look at, uh, this is actually the last book in the Old Testament from the prophet Malachi. This is actually the last passage before we get to the New Testament. We're, we're going to look at Malachi chapter 4. And uh, even though we're reading this passage, this is kind of a, a sermon on uh, all of Malachi, but we're just going to read the end of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's, that's the last word in the, the Old Testament. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this season of Advent because, um, you know, it, it, it um, requires us to maybe uh, think and reflect uh, upon things that are not necessarily uh, the most pleasant, but um, really will help us to enjoy uh, the miracle of Christmas and the sending of your son Jesus into this world. So I pray, God, that you would uh, speak to us uh, in this time and sometimes... Uh, um, I don't know, just in general, like bad news and, and darkness and um, those kind of things can fill us with fear and we can avoid them and we, we don't necessarily want to engage it. Um, but God, help us to uh, be aware of the reality of it uh, so that we can all the more uh, enjoy your victory over it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in a season of Advent. And uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, we're doing something a little bit countercultural in terms of the tone of Advent. Uh, I've been reading this book by, on Advent by an Episcopalian priest named Fleming Rutledge. Uh, she was like a pretty well-known preacher, and she used to preach uh, a few blocks away at Grace Church. And she's actually the one who really—I never really did a study on Advent before. I just kind of uh, adopted like the cultural mindset of like, hey, it's like kind of a— this extension of Christmas, and December is like a month of festivity. Uh, but she actually opened my eyes to like, actually, that's not historically what Advent uh, was supposed to be. And, uh, you know, in the wider culture, the season is kind of like where we start to hear Christmas music, where we get in the Christmas mood, where we start to put up Christmas decorations, and it like generates these like positive feelings because uh, of the Christmas holiday. But what Fleming Rutledge actually points out, she says, Advent actually is not meant to be like this festive holiday or an extension of uh, Christmas in terms of extending its festivity, but it's actually supposed to be a season where we name our sorrows, where we lament uh, the things that make us sad and lament our unfulfilled longings. And this is a season where we actually take on a posture of waiting in the wilderness and uh, where we can contemplate a world the possibility of a world without God so that we can rejoice greatly on Christmas Day when we remember that's not a reality, but God has sent his son Jesus into this world. And so Advent begins in the dark, she says, and to that end, Advent is a season to remember 
The world can be a dark place. It's broken. It can be harsh. And it can render us as people who are weak and helpless and in need. So today, we're going to look at a passage uh, from a pretty dark period in the story of Israel uh, in Malachi. Malachi is the final book in the Old Testament. Malachi was uh, one of the prophets during the post-exilic period, along with Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai and Zechariah had the job of doing, like, of encouragement. So they would encourage the people, rebuild the temple. But Malachi, uh, he doesn't have that job. He has to give this last word in a context of where things are not going so well, where there is, like, sin rampant amongst the people of God. And you kind of get a picture of this in the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah, where the temple is rebuilt, but even though the temple is rebuilt, things are not well spiritually because the priests are corrupt, the temple is defiled, there's greed, the Sabbath is profaned, uh, and things are not great in terms of the spiritual health of Israel. And if you're, uh, it's a little bit of a downer because, you know, through Ezra and Nehemiah, you're kind of like, oh, they're rebuilding the temple and things are going well and there's hope for uh, a better future. And after we rebuild this temple, all of Israel's problems are going to be solved, but at the end of Nehemiah, turns out not to be the case. It turns out that the people of Israel still continue to violate the covenant that they made with God. And what made matters worse is in, in this context, people, uh, they're not taking accountability for their sin, but they seem to be blaming God here, and they don't seem to understand that they are the problem. So what Malachi has to do is he kind of has to hold a mirror to their face and like force them to confront their delusions. I think in general, uh, we are a people, we usually see the sins of others much clearer than we see our own. We can see pretty easily when someone else has an issue with anger or someone else has an issue with pride or someone else is being very self-centered, but we don't always see it within ourselves. Even now as I say that, perhaps some of you are thinking, that's so true. Other people have a hard time seeing their own sin rather than you saying, yeah, that's so true. I do have a hard time seeing my own sin, right? That's just kind of the the default we have. Uh, You know, this kind of of popped to mind, but in our household, you know, when Jen and I uh, make dinner, one of us will cook, and then usually the, the unwritten rule is the other person cleans, okay? And, uh, you know, whenever I cook and then Jen's cleaning, you know what she oftentimes says? She's like, why are you so messy when you cook, right? <laughs> and then she cooked yesterday, and I was doing the dishes yesterday. You know what I was thinking? Why are you so messy when you cook? Why are there so many dishes to do? Uh, and it's like you, you don't see it in yourselves, but you so easily see it in the other person. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that works uh, spiritually as well, especially when it comes to this uh, issue of sin. Uh, usually what we do when we see ourselves, we kind of we have like this filter on. You know what I mean by filter? Like on Zoom or on like social media apps, like there's a filter that hides your blemishes and like maybe smooths out your skin. Uh, I, I shared this before, but I remember when I was making like these devotional videos a couple years ago through COVID, I was like very surprised at how nasty my face looked <laughs> on these videos. Uh, that's what made me start putting lotion on my face. <laughs> but you know, these days you could, you could put a filter on and you can cover up your blemishes, you can cover up your baggy eyes, you can cover up your bad skin, and like I, I'd never have to see my nasty face because of these filters, right? That, that's kind of how we got, like, go through life. Uh, with respect to like our own sin and the things that are wrong with us, we have like these filters up, and for some reason we don't just we don't easily see it within ourselves, and it takes a person to kind of hold a mirror to our face and tell us this is actually what you really look like, right? And it's not a pretty picture. 
And that's basically what Malachi is doing in this book. Uh, in this book, there's like this little debate that's going back and forth between the people and between God. And so, for example, when, uh, in chapter 1, God says this. God says, I have loved you, right? He's making a statement. I have loved you. And you know how the people respond? They go, what? How have you loved us? And basically, it's, they're kind of saying, like, how can you say you've loved us like when we're in the state that we're in? How can you say you loved us when so many things bad happen to us? Uh, and the implicit uh, message there is maybe you don't love us. And so what Malachi has to do is he has to show them, no, these bad things happen to you because you violated the covenant and you disobeyed God. And they're a little bit blind to their own sin. And one of the reasons that they're blind to their own sin is because they're religious people. They're going through the motions. They think they're doing what God wants. Uh, they think they're making temple sacrifices and making offering. And so they're, they're going through the motions of what they think they're, they're supposed to be doing. But even though they're going through the motions, they actually aren't really taking God and his law very seriously. They're, what they're actually doing is they're pretending to honor God and they're pretending to obey God. There's, like a, uh, there's a difference between a teacher and a substitute teacher. Like You're all aware of that, right? The students, you're aware of that. Uh, I've been a substitute teacher before. I've actually subbed at Geneva uh, before. And uh, kids don't respect substitute teachers, you know? <laughs> a substitute teacher can, like, set the rules, and it's like, all right, uh, this is what you have to do today. You're going to read your book quietly, and then you're going to write a paragraph uh, about your reflections on the book. And uh, the kids, they don't really listen to that. They don't really care. They're like, I know this is busy work. You're not a real teacher, so they don't take you seriously. And so what do they do? They, they kind of go through the motions of looking like they do, they're doing their work, and they're like, you know, oh, diligently working. But uh, I know what they're really doing. You know what they're really doing? They're like drawing comics, right? And then they're passing these comics to the other students, and, and then they're like giggling. <laughs> right, Bradley? That's what they do. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, they're pretending to learn and do their assignment, but... Guess what? Their, their hearts are not really uh, there in terms of uh, respecting the, the authority or the honor of their teacher. And that's kind of like what the priests are doing here. They're like, okay, we have to, we're priests. We've got to give sacrifices, so let's give sacrifices. And they go through the motions, but it's not a real sacrifice. What they're doing here is they're offering like, food that's polluted. So it's not, it's not even like good food. It's polluted food, and they're offering blemished animals. Uh, if you read like Leviticus, God is very specific about the kind of offerings that you are supposed to offer to God. You are supposed to give offerings that reflect your best. You are supposed to give the first fruit of your harvest, or you're supposed to offer an animal without blemish. But what these priests are doing is they're giving like their, their junk food, or they're giving like a lame animal or a blind animal that is like no good to them. And so they're not giving God their best, but you know what they're doing? They're going through the motions of saying, hey, what are you talking about? We're doing what we're supposed to do. We are giving this offering to God. And the thing about God is he doesn't so much care about the perception of obedience or the perception of holiness without actually having the real thing. And so when they say to God, I thought you were supposed to love us, implicitly what they're also thinking is like, hey, come on, we're doing everything that you're expecting us to do. Uh, you say you love us. How have you loved us? Why are we in this situation? And again, it's kind of like a student saying to the teacher, like, hey, come on, teacher. Why are you giving us detention? Why are you giving me such a bad grade? I'm, I'm doing my work. And Malachi has to basically hold the mirror up to their face and call them out. And he says, you're not actually doing what you're supposed to do. You're actually dishonoring God. Uh, you're like that student who's just drawing comics and passing notes. You're pretending to do your work, but you're not actually doing the real work. And that basically encapsulates the kind of message 
Malachi has to give to uh, these people, to the people of God. Now, this is kind of a by the way. Um, one of the reasons why the prophets are so effective, I think, in communication is because they use like very vivid imagery. Uh, here, the religious institutions are corrupt. The priests are corrupt and they're greedy. And they aren't giving honor to God's name. And so what message does Malachi have to deliver to them? One of the things he says to the priests is, God will spread dung on your faces. And I haven't done a word study, but I can't imagine God says that very often. So things have to be very bad here uh, in order for God to say that to the priests. Uh, But ultimately, God is tired of their nonsense. It it actually says, like, God is wearied. Uh, When Malachi tells them that their lame offering is not good and that God doesn't accept their offering, their response is, why not? Why wouldn't God accept this offering? And Malachi has to say, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Like, stop. Like, you, you know, if you're a parent and your kids just kind of like keep talking back and then they just kind of wear you down, right? And it's like, come on, I, I, I'm being pretty clear here. This is the point. You messed up. Just own up to it, right? But these people are not doing it and they just kind of keep responding and keep responding. Like, what? Why not? Why not? Why not? And... God says, like, right, Malachi says to them, oh, guys, you guys, you guys have wearied the Lord with your words. Um, uh, what you're saying, your response, are you that blind to your disobedience and to your pride and to your own corruption? Like, this stuff is nonsense. Now, at the same time, uh, not everybody's going to be corrupt in this community and certainly not as corrupt as the priests here. So what are the righteous? Uh, you can imagine how the righteous feel here. They're probably very disillusioned at this point. They're disillusioned with the temple system. They're very, uh, probably very cynical, and they don't think things will get better. And that's tough too, right? I think in the last five to ten years, uh, there have been a lot of like, public stories that have come out about corrupt church leaders. And so I am sure many people uh, these days are familiar with the kind of disillusionment that people in Malachi's day are experiencing. And you kind of go through something like that, and it's like, what's the point, right? Nothing, nothing is good. Nothing's going to change. Nothing will ever get better. So you have these kind of like two groups of people, right? These people who are corrupt and blind to their sin and blind to their own corruption and the ones who maybe are faithful, maybe want to be faithful, maybe fear God, but they're disillusioned and they're cynical that things will ever get better. And that brings us to the passage that we read today. What is a message for uh, both groups of people? What is a message for the corrupt priests? And what is a message for the delusioned, disillusioned God-fearers? And the message is this. The day is coming. The day is coming. In our passage, he says it in the first verse. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. There's a twofold message here. It's a message of both disaster and deliverance, or destruction and deliverance. I don't know why I thought about this, but uh, I thought about Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I thought about like one of his famous lines. This will mm, predate uh, some of the young kids, but you know, one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's famous lines is what? I'll be back, right? I'll be back. And uh, these are pretty old movies, so I don't know how many people here will remember like the Terminator movies. But, uh, you know, in the first Terminator movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he plays the villain. He's like the cyborg assassin, and he is sent back in time to kill Sarah Connor. And in the first Terminator, uh, like, he says, I'll be back. 
And when he says, I'll be back, it's in the context, like, he's in the police station, and he's telling the police officer, right, he's looking for Sarah Connor. He, he, he tells the police officer, right, I'll be back. And then uh, he leaves, and then a minute later, he comes in crashing through the police station with, a, with his car. And this kind of statement, I'll be back, is because Arnold Schwarzenegger is a villain in this context. It's like a terrifying statement. Then you get to Terminator 2, and now Arnold Schwarzenegger is no longer the villain, but now he's the, the cyborg sent back in time to protect John Connor. And he also says, I'll be back in the second Terminator uh, to young John Connor. But when he says, I'll be back there, it's a different message. It's like more of, I'm going to leave you now for a moment because I have to destroy this bad guy, right? But I'll be back so I can be with you, so I can protect you. It's more of like that kind of, I'll be back. In the first Terminator, I'll be back is terrifying. In the second Terminator, I'll be back is hopeful. Now, the analogy breaks down because God is not like flip-flopping between being good and being evil like the Terminator, right? But uh, I guess what I'm trying to communicate is like, I guess the differences of like the same message and the different effects that it can have in a different context. God, of course, is always good, but it's the people who are either righteous or unrighteous. They either want to be faithful to him and to his covenant, or they could care less about being faithful to his covenant. Both hear the same message, and it's going to have a different effect or different ramifications to both groups of people. Whether the message uh, that the day is coming is good really depends upon where they stand before God. So in our passage, for the evildoer, it will be a day of judgment. For those who fear the Lord, it will actually be incredibly wonderful because it will be a day of healing and it will be a day of joyful celebration. Now, it's interesting how many different ways fire can be used, not only in real life, but even in this illustration. And Malachi actually uses both of those uh, effects because on the one hand, fire can be pretty destructive. Fire can be pretty dangerous. That's why we have like fire doors and fire alarms. If a fire breaks out, right, you got to alert people because fire can destroy uh, a building. That's what our passage says about evildoers. A day is coming, and it, this day is going to set them ablaze, right? Uh, but fire also has another function. It can actually bring warmth. It can bring healing. Uh, the imagery here is it's the sun, right? The, the solar sun of righteousness that will rise with healing in its wings. And you think about, uh, you know, especially I guess like in, um, well, it's not as cold today, but you think about like the coldest of winters and the darkest of winters, and it's like, oh, it's so cold, but then the sun rises and you feel like the warmth, and then all of a sudden it just kind of does something to you and makes you feel better, Right? That's, that's the effect that uh, the sun can have as well. But, you know, there's actually a third use of fire that is not in chapter 4, but you actually find it in chapter 3. Now, as I was reading this, I was thinking, like, you, these, the categories of people are clearly divided. You have righteous and you have unrighteous. But then when I thought about how do I apply it to myself, I said to myself, well, you know, I, can, I feel like I could be a combination of both, right? Sometimes there's, like, good in me and sometimes there's evil in me. Sometimes there's, there's times I can be generous, but there's also times where I can be greedy. There are times where I feel like I can, I'm giving God my best, but there's also times where I know I'm, I'm not giving God my best and I'm just giving him my leftovers. There are times where I honor God, but there's also times where I don't give God the honor that he deserves. And so, like, what, what do I do with that? And how do I interpret this prophet? There's a third kind of fire found in chapter 3, which is the refiner's fire. It says, God will be like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. What he is going to do is he is going to come and he's going to purge all evil. He is going to purify all the priests. And I think this imagery is something that probably has captured the imagination of songwriters because 
you have a lot of songs or a couple songs at least about Refiner's Fire. Um, and I think it's like good to sing about that. Like, you know, I want to be refined. Uh, I forget the lyrics now, but <laughs> like something to that effect, right? God refine me. But we should also realize what it means to sing that or to want that. The end result of a refiner's fire is good because it's purification, but it's also an incredibly painful process. The way you purify silver or gold, you burn away all of the impurities, and that can be something that is incredibly painful. You know, today when we clean ourselves, uh, what do we do? We, like, take a shower, right? We use some soap. I like the foam soap. It's it's a nice experience, comfortable experience. It's uh, pretty painless. Um, you know, I was really hesitant to share this because I don't know how many people have the same experience, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe some people have this experience. When I was going up, growing up, <clears throat> I had these memories of um, as a child where my mom would, like, wash me old-school Korean style, okay? Now, what that means is, like, when she would give me a bath, I would be, like, screaming in pain. The reason I would be screaming in pain is, like, and I... I remember the rag. It was like this red rag, and it was like really rough. And what she would do is like, like scrub all the dead skin off of me, like in Korean, right? She would scrub all the dead skin off of me, and you would kind of see like all of that dirt and all that dead skin like in the bath. And I was like so resistant to it because it was so painful. And she would be like, she would like be holding me and like, I'm like, ah, stop it! Why are you doing this to me? Right? That's that's how bath time would go. And she would say, it's because you're dirty, right? I need to clean you. And she scrubbed me, and uh, I was like, this, like, bath time is terrible. I hate this. And she would, like, point to the actual, like, water. She'd like, look at you. Look, I mean, look at this water. This is what was on you, right? Is it just me? Does <laughs> happens to anybody else? Anyway, uh, purification can be a, a painful process, right? Clen- being cleansed can be a painful process, And in the beginning of Malachi, the people questioned God's love because of the painful trials that they experienced. And yet, the painful process of purification is ultimately a display of God's love. Sometimes it does take the pain of a cold, dark winter to humble us to a point where we open our hearts to the need of the healing warmth of the sun. And what we have to battle with is our own sense of self-dependence and self-reliance and wanting to do things our own way. And sometimes what we actually need is to be reminded that that doesn't work and that doesn't lead to life and that doesn't lead to joy. And the, the greatest, not the greatest act of love, but one of the ways God loves us is to remind us through pain, right, the, the purification of refiner's fire, that... Ultimately, what we need is God himself. After the prophet Malachi, there would be a cold, dark winter. Fleming Rutledge calls this an ice age. An ice age is when the sun is blocked, survival becomes a struggle, the people are oppressed, the nation is dishonored. Uh, In our Bibles, we don't have the books that happen between Malachi and the Gospels. Um, But if you know the story of like the Jewish Hanukkah, the Jewish people went through more hardship in between that time, right? Uh, But the Ice Age would eventually thaw. And what we have here in the final word in Malachi is this great promise where he says, Behold, right, God's saying this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And what would happen? 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak anymore through his prophets. A spiritual ice age. But then the sun starts to rise. The ice begins to thaw. The Gospel of Mark begins with John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The prophet Elijah, in the form of John the Baptist, has come, and he now sets the stage for God to come in the most incredible and unexpected way imaginable. I'm going to end here. I would not normally end a sermon like this because there's no climax of the gospel. I like including the climax of the gospel. But today, intentionally, I want to end here on that tension. Uh, if you've seen the Avengers, like that's what the Avengers movie did, right? Part one and part two, or the latest Mission Impossible, right? Part one, part two. It's like a, a you know, kind of like a cliffhanger. Uh, after the first movie, it ends, and the problem isn't ultimately resolved. You've got to wait an entire year for the end of the story. For the Jewish people, they had to wait like 400 years for the end of the story. Um, but I'm going to end here, and I want you to feel that tension. Uh, it's not our reality, because Christmas is our reality. But maybe for a moment, imagine what it would have been like for God to hide his face from us entirely, for him not to send Jesus for darkness to not be overcome and for us to kind of live in this tension. And as we maybe imagine that, the hope is Christmas will really hit us more powerfully this year because that is not our reality because Jesus has come. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you for this word. Uh, and it's not always a, I don't know, it's not always a positive word, um, but it is always a word of hope. And even in the midst of uh, judgment and holding a mirror to uh, your people's face in terms of uh, their sin and calling them out, we do know that there is love behind that. And even when going through the purification of refiner's fire, we do know that there is love behind that. And so we pray, God, uh, if anything, you would help us to... um, you would help us to have the, the kind of hearts that we need, uh, not necessarily to just, um, you know, do the right thing or to pretend to do the right thing, but we want to have the heart uh, to receive you, to receive uh, the hope that you give, the life that you give, the security that you give, the joy that you give, the healing that you give. And we confess to you, sometimes we get in our own ways. Soften our hearts, God, and especially for this Christmas, soften our hearts that we might truly rejoice from the deepest part of our hearts uh, that you don't leave us where we are, but the day has come in Jesus Christ and darkness is overcome. The ice age has melted and we have both uh, the sun as your sun, but also the sun as the solar sun of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.